Lord, indeed, you know us, and we invite you in this hour to search through the deeper things of our heart and to sort out what's right from wrong, what's noble from what is less worthy, and that you will meet us with your scripture and draw us again nearer to you. God, we're here to worship you. We're here to sit at your feet. Meet us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Hey, friends, for the next two weeks, we are going to take uh, a journey into examining what the New Testament part of the Scriptures says about this thing we call worship. What is it to worship? Um, Back in February, not that I expect you to remember this, we had a, a couple weeks examining what the Old Testament Scriptures have to say about what worship was for the people of God during that era. So now two weeks on what the New Testament says. And uh, for the last few weeks with our friend Dr. Sam Amster, we've heard about living up and in and community and out to the world. And I'd simply recognize that these two weeks on worship are pretty strongly focused on the up dimension. And worship, when it's healthy and best, works like this. It is the fuel which uh, empowers the communal part And the reaching out part. When we are connected to God in worship, it makes everything else possible. Um, To help guide us today, I'm going to ask six questions of the New Testament and see what it says about worship. Here's the questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how? Perhaps you learned these in school. There's an old electric company song that, like, taught little kids these questions. I have these questions burning in my brain right now. Who, what, where, why, when, and how? Because they're also the questions of criminal investigation. Um, So just a short personal aside. A couple months ago, I received a letter in the mail uh, summoning me to the county courthouse of DuPage County in Wheaton, Illinois, for a potential grand jury uh, service. So I wrote a letter back and an email back to the county saying, I'm a very important person. (laughs) This would would not be a good time for me right now. Like, my colleague just retired. There's, like, a lot of people at this church that I serve. And, like, could you defer this potentially? And they wrote me back very kindly and said, you are not a very important person. Uh, You will show up on this date and time. So I did so... Um, like three and a half weeks ago, and uh, there's like a hundred people in the room. A judge comes in and says uh, something to the effect, for the 16 of you that are going to be chosen for this, I apologize in advance because this is going to be profoundly inconvenient. If you're chosen, you will serve one day a week for the next three and a half months. And then proceeds to say, you might think, again, that you're a very important person or that you're busy, There's a lot going on with your job and responsibilities. You might be traveling. You might be going to school. You might be raising small children. If you think that that is a good reason, you can come talk to me, but I will say no for every one of those. If you are experiencing what could be a mortal illness or directly caring for someone whose life may be failing imminently, I will let you out. And I was chosen. Out of those hundred people, I was chosen. I confess, I spent the rest of the day thinking unhappy thoughts. <laughs> uh, 
And in the, the 24 hours after that, like, right, who, who if somebody just tapped you on the shoulder was like, you know, for the next four months, one day a week, that's all we're going to take. You know, the rest is all fine. Um, so, like, that's kind of where I'm at. And I had this struggle, still struggling, to embrace this as something, an opportunity that I get to serve rather than something that I have to do and am compelled by the state to do. Know what I'm saying? But by God's grace, there will be some great learning for me, some great growth for me, some great working with people outside our circles here that are, uh, that are ahead and in store for me. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is that whenever somebody is potentially um, convicted of felony activity, a detective, a cop, a criminal investigator is asking these questions. What was the crime? When did it happen? Where did it happen? How did it happen? To a lesser degree, why did it happen? Motive is kind of later in the game. We don't concern ourselves so much on the grand jury with that. Um, So this is where my mind is. And this is where I'm going to take you into the New Testament and apply these questions to worship. Still with me? Short disclaimer. In contemporary American culture, lots of times when the word worship is uttered these days, we make a quick connection to singing just simply singing and making music. That is a very small and narrow definition of worship and it is not what I intend to speak of nor what the New Testament speaks of. When I speak of worship, it is simply this. It is a posture, a life, an activity where God is God and we are not. Where we glorify him, where we honor him, where we connect with him, where we praise him, where the world is in its right order, where God is God and we are his people. Still with me? All right. Question number one. According to the scriptures, where do we worship? Where are we supposed to worship? Well, here we are in church. That is not the answer. Like, a building is not the answer. What the scriptures teach us is that where worship ought to happen is where the disciples of Jesus are in community with each other. That is where worship is to happen. If I can put it another way, God designed worship, God describes worship in the New Testament as a team sport. Sometimes we think, like, I was worshiping, and we make it very personal and individual. The New Testament describes worship as a team sport. Now, just like baseball, it's designed to play with two teams and with multiple players on, you know, every team, right? You can practice baseball by yourself. You can throw tennis balls against a a brick wall, and it bounces back to you. That's okay. You can get in front of a a mechanical pitching machine and take batting practice, that's okay. But compared to the fun and the joy of having two teams going at it, like individual practice is good, but it's not the real thing. It's not the whole thing. It's not the thing that's intended. Worship is a team sport. There's something that's able to happen when the Spirit of God inhabits the community of Jesus, the body of Christ, that cannot happen when we are just alone. Jesus put it this way. It doesn't take a big team, but where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. In the pages of the New Testament, people worship at a riverside. They worship at the Jerusalem temple. 
the Jewish temple. They worship in open fields, in houses. By the way, one of my favorite New Testament stories is when the Apostle Paul is preaching and he goes on so long that a guy falls asleep and falls out of the window. And that's why we don't. That's why we keep the curtain shut. <laughs> Especially during the sermon. Uh, people worship on ships in public buildings that belong to the Roman state and are rented out to the early Christians. They worship in Jewish synagogues. A huge variety. Where are we supposed to worship? Wherever the people of God are gathered. That is where we're meant to worship. Now, there have been so many Christians in the United States for so long that we kind of get unconsciously convinced that I need to go to a church building that's dedicated and set aside to worship. That is not what the pages of the New Testament say. Wherever the Spirit of God and the people of God are, worship can flourish and explode. When do we worship? Same kind of thing. If you've been a North American Christian, like Sunday morning, right? That is not necessarily the New Testament answer for when to worship. When are we supposed to worship? Quite frankly, anytime the people of God are together, anytime the Spirit of God is in the midst, is a fine time to worship. When's a good time to practice worship? Anytime you're awake, and if you can get your dreams to go there, even better. I'm just remembering along, <laughs> my wife and I were at a Youth with a Mission thing like 30 years ago. It was such exuberant worship that for like two weeks afterwards, I was clapping my hands in my sleep, like waking myself up. Right? What's tremendous annoy tremendously annoying to your spouse if they wake you up uh, clapping in their sleep. Um, the early church did not immediately start worshiping on Sunday morning. I mean, they were the heirs to more than a thousand years of Judaism, the first Christians by and large being culturally Jewish. The Jews have observed the Sabbath day as a deep rhythm in life. And that continued for the first few years and decades in some circles of Christian worship. And then, as the church got broader in terms of geography and race and ethnicity, folks had this idea. You know what? All things being equal, wouldn't it be awesome to worship together and gather as believers on the day that Jesus rose from the dead? That is the ultimate day of celebration. We will get together on Sunday, the morning after the Jewish Sabbath, and celebrate the death and especially resurrection of Christ. Notice that the church did not start meeting and worshiping on Friday morning, on Good Friday, the day of the crucifixion. The church thought, all things being equal, it would be great if we take our Sabbath and celebrate together on Resurrection Day. That's where it's at. However, it's remarkably flexible. When I planted a church in northern Michigan, because of the nature of that town, it became apparent that the best time, uh, the most flexible time to gather and welcome others in was actually Saturday evening. So we worshiped on Saturday night. And then the community typically gathered for a meal and some fun on Sunday morning, or folks would. It was a kind of a tourist town. Was God displeased that people were singing and worshiping and celebrating the Lord's Supper on Saturday night instead of Sunday morning? Caught a little grief for this. Anytime the people of God are together, 
is a good time for worship. Who do we worship? Now we're getting into the heart of the matter. Who do we worship? Since its first days, it has been very clear, crystal clear, that the community of Jesus worships the one true God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We gather in the name of the triune God. Small disclaimer, the word Trinity appears nowhere in the pages of the Scriptures, Old Testament or New Testament. I mean, this word did not exist in Christian theology until a few hundred years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. If you're surprised by this, be surprised. Like, it's nowhere in the Bible that God says, I am one, I am three, believe it and worship me as such. However, if you read the pages of Scripture, it is very clear the most important thing God reveals and says about himself is that he is one and that he is three persons in his unity. The very beginning of the Bible, God creates the heavens and the earth. God is the creator, speaks, let there be light, and the universe spins into majestic existence. Two verses later, it says, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. I mean, three verses into the Scripture, and already there is Creator God who's speaking and the Spirit of God who's hovering over. Like, what is that? I mean, this is like 1,500 years B.C. I mean, Jewish monotheists, one God, who two pages into the sacred Scriptures are already mentioning a Creator God and the Spirit. of Like, how is that possible? If you flip just a couple pages over, when God comes to create human beings on the sixth day of of creation, God says, let us create mankind in our own image. Doesn't that strike you as a curious thing again? Like God is speaking to himself in the plurality. Like if you ever do that in front of your friends and family, they'll be like, what do you think you are, the queen of England? But God is the king of the universe. God is the emperor of the universe. He deserves to speak that way because he is three in one and one in three. I mean, when Jesus was baptized, Jesus, the Son of God, went down into the waters of the Jordan River. The voice of God the Father spoke from heaven. This is my Son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. And the Spirit of God descended in bodily form and alighted on Jesus as if to put God's sign and seal on him in Jesus' baptism. The Son is there. The Father's there. The Spirit's there. Early Christians, when they greeted one another, you can see this in the writings of the Apostle Paul. The grace of God the Father, the love of Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. I mean, the way folks said hello and goodbye to each other in the church was in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how they baptized folks from the very... You can't escape the fact, even though the word Trinity is not in the Bible, that we worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Having said that, the New Testament also has a spotlight. And the spotlight shines in the New Testament on the work of the second person of the Trinity, on Jesus, on the Messiah, on what he came to do on our behalf. 
going to read from two passages in the book of Hebrews in the course of this message, from Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 13, kind of bookends of uh, that very hard-to-understand book of Hebrews. But here's how it begins. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us, even more specifically, by his Son, He sensed the spotlight turning on and turning toward Jesus of Nazareth. And here's how we describe this Jesus of Nazareth. Whom God appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is going to inherit the universe. And through whom also he made the universe. God made everything through Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Do you want to know what God looks like? Look at his reflection in Jesus. And the exact representation of his being. Do you want to see, to know, to understand, to comprehend the face of God? Jesus. And he is sustaining all things, even now as we sit here. What is keeping the universe glued together? Jesus is. By his powerful word. Now, part of my job description here at Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church is that I'm the director of worship. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, on, a, on some kind of infinitesimal, tiny level, like I have some responsibilities here, right? The Holy Spirit is the director of worship. Anytime you feel love, affection, praise, honor, glory welling up inside your hearts, anytime you detect it in the community around you, like that is a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is working. The Holy Spirit is the one who puts his hands on the spotlight and turns it toward Jesus time and time and time again. It is not us. It is not me. It is not the worship band. It's not talented people anywhere. It is the Holy Spirit who directs worship. And it is Jesus who we worship. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Right on. Why do we worship him? Simply because of who he is. He is God. And because of what he has done on our behalf. Or quite simply, because he alone deserves it. Jesus alone is worthy of our ultimate praise, glory, honor, adoration. The book of Hebrews is written to folks who, even in the earliest Christian days, got a little possibly confused on this point, or who fell victim to the universal temptation of human nature to worship Jesus and then just add a little bit. So back 2,000 years ago, folks kind of struggled, these early Jewish Christians. Jesus and what about the angels? Jesus and what about the priesthood? Jesus and what about Moses and the law of Moses that our ancestors have been living their lives by for all these hundreds of years? And the book of Hebrews is written to this community who had those particular Jesus and and say, hey people, 
It's just Jesus. Like, there's other great stuff, but, like, if it's a book, it just says Jesus on every page, and then everything else are in tiny little footnote prints at the very end. It doesn't mean it's insignificant, but compared to Jesus, everything else is a tiny little footnote. We have different Jesus and these days. Here's my confession. Perhaps you'll recognize some of these things. Jesus and success. Jesus and some prosperity. Jesus and my life generally turns out well. Like that's what's supposed to happen when you follow Jesus, right? Jesus and, I say this in a Christian Reformed church, we have a long, beautiful tradition of emphasizing uh, schools, the life of the mind, Jesus and quality education. Jesus and political influence here in the United States. Jesus and my personal comfort. And the word of God comes to us all these years later with whatever things we like to tack on to the gospel and say, you know what, people? Jesus and Jesus alone is more than enough. So how do you figure out what the and is in your life or in our community's life? I would make the case that all of us, if you examine a few simple things, they create a little rabbit trail leading to what we like to add to the throne of Jesus. So if you just look at your calendar, paper calendar, Google calendar, just look at the priorities, the way they shake out in your time and what's on your calendar, like that starts making a little trail. If you were to look at, oh, say, your internet history, I mean, the things that you spend in terms of screen time that reveal like what you like to spend your time on, what you like to spend your curiosity, your thought life on, what would that say about what you like to worship? Right? If, you, if, you, if we could share with each other our credit card statements, our checkbook ledger, uh, our monthly bank reports, what would that say about what matters most in the way we allocate the resources that God has entrusted us to the world? So what we do with our time, with our thoughts, with our internet cookies, with our cold hard cash, with all of that stuff makes a trail. And if you are willing to examine your life and walk down that trail, it will lead you to a throne. And what is at the end of that trail is a throne, and there is the thing you love to worship. Oh, mercy, right? Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who deserves to be at the end of all of our trails. It's not to say we need to divorce ourselves from the world and have no other interests, but Jesus is the one who alone deserves to stand in the spotlight and have first place. Everything else is in orbit around his gravity. 
Why do we worship? Because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Hebrews chapter 13 puts it very directly. If you would read the words in yellow, which highlight this. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought from the dead our Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep. May that God equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Build a trail that leads to Jesus' throne. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So in this just short two-verse statement at the end of the book, book of Hebrews, it's very clear. What did Jesus do? He shed his blood on the cross, the blood of the eternal covenant that connects divinity to humanity. And not only did Jesus shed his blood, but God brought him back from the dead. And because of these two events in human history, the shedding of Jesus' perfect innocent blood and his resurrection from the dead, we worship him. Glory forever and ever. Amen. Like, that's the New Testament story. In telling this story, though, the New Testament makes it clear that what Jesus did is a deepening, an enhancing, a making even more true the redemption story that folks had already known for 1,500 years that God rescues his people out of bondage. The first redemption story went like this. Moses was born in Egypt as an insider, became an outsider, and came back to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. In the second story, Jesus is the ultimate insider, the creator, who becomes the outsider, who comes from heaven and earth to become the ultimate insider and live the perfect human life. In the first redemption story, people are set free from physical, manual slavery. In the better redemption story, we, the people, are set free from the permanent addiction and slavery to our flesh and sinful nature. In the first redemption story, the people are led across the Red Sea. The waters part, and they walk through to a brand new place someplace they have never been or guessed at. In the second redemption story, we walk through the waters of this life and Jesus parts time and space so we can enter a new land that we as yet can only, with just a glimmer, imagine and guess at. In the first redemption story, the blood of an innocent lamb was painted over the lentil of each believing household. In the second redemption story, the blood of Christ is painted on a cross, which is the doorpost for the entire universe. I'm not just making this stuff up. <laughs> it's across the pages of Scripture. And we worship Jesus because he not only redeemed people once, but he did it once and for all, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles and everybody of every language. And it's not just that he died. And sometimes the church just leaves it at that. Jesus died for us. 
It's that he came back for us. Jesus went to the dead. He won the victory, but that was not enough. He came back to gather a people, to gather a family for himself. Have you ever been left behind by a friend or family member? Have you ever left a child at a gas station? I was the fifth kid. I got left behind all the time. When one of my siblings would come back, or on that one occasion, when my parents had to turn around the car, it was like the biggest relief in the world that was not forgotten. I was remembered. I was loved. Jesus came to the gas station of sin. I mean, he went to the dead and then came back and picked us all up and is putting us in God's car and taking us to the promised land. You have not been forgotten. We love Jesus so much because he died for us. And then, and then, on Sunday morning, we remember that he came back from the dead for us. If God would do that for you, what could stop him from getting you all the way to his presence? Last two questions. Could go pretty quickly now. What do we do in worship? What do we do? God, in his infinite wisdom, did not give us an exact playbook. He did not say, you know, sing four songs, then have a sermon, then take the offering, drink some coffee, I'll be happy. God, in his infinite wisdom, did not give us too many specific directions. Otherwise, we would just slavishly follow that and not be able to put our hearts in it. Ugh. Here's what God left us in the pages of the New Testament. The essential ingredients of what normally should happen when Jesus' disciples get together. As far as I can tell, there are only five or six ingredients, but these have been happening for 2,000 years. When God's people get together, we sing as a part of honoring God. And especially, we sing the Psalms. We remember the Psalms. I mean, three different Psalms already showed up in this worship service, if you were keeping track. We pray together. Prayers to honor God, prayers for the needs of the world, prayers of confession. We pray, and there's a thousand ways to pray. When Jesus' disciples get together, Scripture is read. And usually, somebody gets up and talks about those Scriptures and tries to apply it to this specific time and place, wherever it happens to be that Christians are worshiping. In the earliest church, that person was called the president. I kind of like that. No, that's horrible. <laughs> Just somebody needs to speak about the scriptures and apply them, right? In Christian worship, offerings are taken for the poor and for the service of the church. And finally, words of blessing are spoken. God's blessing over us, and we bless one another. I mean, it's, it's like five or six things. Did you notice on that list, there was nothing about what language that should happen in? There was nothing about the size or shape of the building that it should happen in, or even if it should be in a building. There's nothing about what kind of music or what kind of instruments, or even if there should be a choir or a worship band or, you know, moments of silence. Or, there is nothing about this. There is not anything about technology of any kind. Hymnals, screens, papyruses, like there's nothing about any of that. There is nothing in the pages of the New Testament about worship depending on ordained clergy. What? Oh, that's super humbling. 
I am not needed, right? The Holy Spirit is the director of worship and we worship Jesus. Like that is enough to keep the church going. There is nothing about the type of preaching, the style of preaching. What we get wrong so often as people as we major in these little cultural details. A hundred years ago in our denomination, which has ethnically Dutch roots, there was a lot of heat and energy around, hmm, should our worship services gravitate toward the English language now that we're in America rather than staying in Dutch? That does not seem like a burning issue to us, does it? I mean, not all that long ago, is it okay to sing together if the words or the music are on screens instead of hymnals? Let me go on the record as saying, as someone who speaks for God once in a while, God doesn't care. (laughs) Just like God could profoundly care less whether his people are using books, organs, guitars, screens. Like, it just doesn't matter. What matters is the glory and affection and honor going toward Jesus. All the mechanics of how are just the little footnotes at the end. May I publicly repent before you on behalf of so many other pastors and worship leaders for steering you wrong, for steering the people of God wrong. If we could take all the human resources and time and energy that has been spent on all the minutia and the footnotes over the centuries and instead direct it toward the living Lord Jesus, oh, the good that we've missed. In the pages of the New Testament, as long as we're singing to God together, praying together, reading scripture together, trying to apply scripture together, making offerings for the work of God together, and sharing a blessing, however that goes down, it's all good. It's all good. (sighs) Last but not least, how do we worship? Given what I just said, I think the answer is with great freedom and flexibility. There is no exact recipe of how to combine those ingredients. We are free in the United States, in North America in 2017, to discern the best way to do this that helps our hearts spring alive and share the good news with folks who maybe don't quite understand it yet. We're free to do that. I will add to that freedom two words that in this day and age I'm hoping to emphasize. Here are the words. Joy and togetherness. All things being equal, our worship should be colored by joy. That should be the tone, the vibe of our worship. This does not mean that when you come into this room you need to be happy and smiling. Right? Every week, some of us come in here and we are a wreck. Things have gone profoundly wrong. The reason for our joy in worship is not how the circumstances of our lives are going at any particular moment. The joy in Christian worship is because Jesus died and rose from the grave. Hallelujah. Even if I'm wasting away, Jesus still is coming back for me and already came back for the dead from me so I can experience joy even as I weep and lament. Joy. And we are to experience togetherness because worship 
is a team sport. It's not the place where we come emphasizing, oh, I like it this way. Oh, I want it that way. Oh, when I come to Sunday, as long as, you know, it's songs from this set of 25 lists, if there's two songs from that set, I'll be, like, very happy. And if you don't play my songs, I'll be very upset. Thank you for laughing. A few of us have thought that way once in a while, and I would simply direct you to the fact that when we have those thoughts, those are the tiny little footnotes. You're not a horrible person for having preferences. We all do. But as long as the name of Jesus is being sung, as long as the spotlight is shining on Jesus, couldn't that be enough for us? At the beginning of every worship service here these days, as a way of emphasizing this joy and togetherness, Psalm 122, verse 1 is shared. Here's the words I rejoiced. There's the joy. When they said to me, let's go together, there's the unity and togetherness, let's go together to the house of God. Like that's what we need to have a great time together in God's presence. Rejoicing, a desire to be together, and heading in the direction where Jesus is. It is, um, it's my humble intention, uh, as much as I can as a pastor here, to guide us into that, to value that. If you catch me emphasizing the footnotes, throw something at me. Now, honestly, I mean, send me an email 10 seconds later. My desire more than anything is not for some particular kind of music, for some particular set of songs for anything in particular other than us desiring to rejoice in God's presence together and honor Jesus. 100% trust if we are committed to doing that, it will be well in our community. And we will experience the blessing of God because being with God is the blessing of God. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we applaud the fact that you make life with you crystal clear in your word. Uh, Forgive us for all the ways we turn it sideways and get it wrong and find ever new creative ways to be selfish. Uh, Lord, in our heart of hearts, though, we know deep down that the best possible life is one where you are God and we are not, where your will is done and our preferences take back seat. Lord, In this community, within these very walls, may a heart for worshiping you, Lord Jesus, always come first. It's in your name we pray, and everybody said, amen. This is the time in our service where, as an act of worship, binding us to 2,000 years of disciples, we give our tithes and offerings uh, to the Lord. Uh, In light of the recent hurricanes, um, we are taking special offerings through the recommendation of our deacons for hurricane relief through an organization called World Renew, which is awesome, was birthed out of our denomination. If you want to make use of that envelope in the worship folder, it will be in there this week and next week as well. God has been so generous. Um, please be generous in return. And um, 